You're listening to the Gold Standard Podcast. I'm your host, three-time Olympian and motivational speaker, Leah Amico. On this show, we're going to dig deep to unlock what it actually takes to build a foundation for greatness. If you're an ambitious person with big vision, but you feel like fear is holding you back, get ready for some major breakthroughs. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gold Standard Podcast. Today I have a friend from the NFL. He was a 2009 uh, inductee into the Kansas City Chiefs Hall of Fame, known for being the most accurate kicker in the NFL and played for 18 years in the NFL, seven-time All-Pro athlete, Nick Lowry. Welcome to the Gold Standard Podcast. Thank you. You know, I love it when you say most accurate kicker in NFL history because balancing that out is that I was cut over two years and rejected 11 times by eight NFL teams. You know, always right under the surface of success is all the adversity, the rejection, not being appreciated, not people not seeing what you're made of. I know that you probably have a couple stories about that. And of course, you, you, we were just talking about you coaching the Israeli, you know, a coach wants to bring out the best in his or her players and, you know, they need hard uh, criticism balanced with building their confidence. And, um, you know, I just know I would never have been the same kicker if it wasn't through the process of the rejection, digging deeper, rejection, digging deeper. And then suddenly I'm able to beat out the greatest kicker in the history of the game, Jan Stenerud, who became the first kicker in the NFL, uh, the pure kicker in the NFL Hall of Fame and broke every single one of his records. So, you know, that didn't happen except for realizing I had to dig deeper than I ever had because um, at my position, the kicker, it's very clear. You either make it or you don't. You either get it done or you don't. And so you have to learn to take responsibility and um, get ready for the next one and just keep getting better no matter what. Wow. That is a powerful message. I mean, we could end right here. (laughs) We just started the podcast, but that could be it because I really think that the best, the people who go on to do the greatest things, they use adversity to their advantage. They find a way. And I think champions rise up and they're made in the challenges. It's in the daily grind and the heartache and that mental challenge. Like, yeah, it was physical. You had to figure it out, but there was a whole lot of mental stuff taking place. And in order for you to be strong, like you're talking about, because when you're kicking, I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about the pressure. I always think, you know, football, there's all these guys. Yeah. The quarterback, they have the ball and people are trying to protect him. And then he's got to make his passes. But when you're kicking, it's kind of like you, all eyes on you. So what kind of mentality do you have to have? Yeah, I was a pitcher at Dartmouth College and I was, you know, a pitcher in, in high school. I love the the similarity of being on an island. The difference, though, it's sort of like you're a relief pitcher and you come in and it's a three and two count and you got one pitch. And if it's a ball, you walk the guy and or you've given up a base hit, you know, you have to get it done with one pitch. And frankly, they can foul it off. So you might get more than one pitch as a relief pitcher. So as a kicker, you don't get, you can't say, you know, my best Bill Murray imitation, you know, Mr. Referee, I wasn't feeling, you know, quite ready for that one. Can we do it again? Or on the field, can you imagine a kicker going, Marty, Marty Schottenheimer, not feeling right. Can you, you know, can you give me a little time, please? You know, you never know when you're going to have to make it and you just have to be ready. So you practice, you practice to be ready. You practice that it's going to come down to you. 
and you practice so that even if it's a 50-yard field goal in the first quarter, an extra point, or it's the last second field goal, all of those kicks matter. If you miss an extra point, it always seems to be, if you follow the NFL, always seems to be important to what happens the rest of the game. So it's a great teacher to have that level of accountability. And frankly, getting on my high horse or not so high horse for a second, you know, I think the best thing that uh, having done a lot of work in education, particularly with American Indians and working with inner city kids and Native American kids, and et cetera, is accountability, is taking responsibility. If you get a bad grade, it's not because the teacher was a jerk or whatever. What did you do? You know, accept responsibility and know that you are the answer. You're the answer. Most of the time, you're the answer. Yeah, you know, we all have jerk coaches. You probably have one or two that were not your favorite. But what do you do with that? And so I, I'm really proud of the fact that really kicking taught me a lot about just taking not making excuses. You know, that doesn't do any good. Just get ready for the next one. Keep learning. Keep never take it for granted. Or as Rafael Nadal would say, my one of my favorite athletes in the world, stay hungry and humble. I love that. So good. Just a reminder for all of us. My coach would say to us on Team USA, pressure is a privilege. What do you think about that statement? That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, um, by the way, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to somebody who's a gold medalist, who's a star in her own right. So let's let's make sure we're clear about that. And pressure is really interesting. So one of the things that you may have not heard put this way before is when you're feeling nervous, the problem is not the nervousness, because nervousness means you care. You put a lot of work in. It matters to you. The problem is usually that you're trying to say, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Well, your body's nervous for a reason. And so it's fighting itself. One part of you is saying, oh, I don't want to be nervous. And the other part is saying, yeah, I'm nervous. And so I would turn that on its head and say, I want to be nervous. I earned the right to be nervous. And exactly what you said and your coach said Pressure is a privilege. That's actually one of the things that one of the stars for the Arizona Diamondbacks was saying, you know, as a rookie and a rookie of the year coming out and uh, Corbin Carroll and just saying, you know, we earn the right to be in a situation where we're nervous. And that way you're not fighting yourself. And guess what? Once you're not fighting yourself, your reaction time, your mental acuity, your adrenaline, yeah, you have to take adjustments sometimes. Sometimes you're a little bit too quick, but that settles down. And and look at that team. You know, they lost 100, what, 110 games two years ago. And now they, you know, they shut out Dodgers, the uh, Milwaukee Braves, the Milwaukee, whatever they're called. Uh, and they and they beat Philadelphia four games in a row in Philly, which is not exactly a hospitable and hospitable environment. So they didn't win the World Series, but they're young. So watch out. And those guys understand about nerves. And I think they'll be back. So let's take it back to a young Nick Lowry. What helped you to be this athlete that went to college and pitched and then again got into the NFL and just stayed there? What tell me a little bit about what who you were as a young child? Well, um, I my dad is very different background. My mother was a group of women at um, at Oxford, full class, and helping run the first Fulbright Scholars program And right after the war, 1949-50. And my father was in the first group of Fulbright Scholars. And so we had this connection with England. They were married in London. My dad was CIA, an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe in a time when Right after the war, we knew intelligence really was a big reason why we had the edge and enabled us to win World War II. 
And so I was born in Munich, only lived there for less than a year, then came back to England when I was nine. And that was 1965. That's how old I am. And England hosted and won the World Cup in soccer in 66. So I'm playing soccer 10 hours a day. I mean, literally couple hours before school and recess, lunchtime, sports after school. You know, I loved soccer. I was about this much taller than all my British friends, uh, getting a great education at St. Paul's School in Kensington on Kensington High Street back then. They call you by your last name. You're taking Latin and French and complicated mathematics and whatever. But uh, we played lots of sports. We played cricket. I still hold the cricket ball throw 70 yards as a 10-year-old, 9, 10-year-old, and uh, played rugby three months, three weeks a year at Ealing Common in London. And when you play rugby, you know, you take a ball that's shaped like an NFL football. It's a little bit fatter. And you kick a hole in the ground. And I saw the others doing it. I tried it. And before you know it, the coaches for the team, two years older for the 12 and 13 year old team, and I'm 10, they want me to play for them. And uh, we ended up going to Germany after that. So that didn't happen and didn't do any kicking at all. No soccer, just played basketball and little league baseball. We had the second best little league team in Bonn, Germany, which was the capital then 67, eight, nine, and then came back in eighth grade to the States. And that's where I put a ball on the tee in football. I was playing a very thin wide receiver, not wide at all. It was just so natural. I was hitting 45-yard field goals easily off a tee and um, kicked a spiraling 32-yard field goal. My first field goal against Landon, our arc rival for Potomac School in McLean, Virginia. Then kicked uh, and beat Sidwell Friends, where Bill Clinton's daughter Chelsea went, where Obama's kids went. Uh, we beat them in the rain, 3 to nothing on my 42-yard field goal as a sophomore. And that's when I began to think, you know, you know I've got some potential. Who knows? Uh, but And that's also when I had a wonderful coach, great mentor. So mentorship is another part of this whole thing is finding great coaches or people that bring out your best. And Coach Dick Johnson, who hadn't been a kicker, but had just incredible intuitive wisdom, said, you know, your biggest challenge is what you do with this, with your brain, how you learn to relax yourself. Don't be so hyper. Not that I'm hyper. You know, learn to control and harness and focus your energies and so that was always a priority after that. And then, of course, it was about persistence, you know, and he helped coach me through high school, kicked a 43-yard field goal in the mud and the rain with two seconds left in my high school career to beat Landon again, nine to seven. And that became kind of a legendary uh, kick. And, and you watch the video when they had, they retired my jersey about 10 years ago. The Landon fans were running on the field because nobody makes a 43-yard field goal in the mud and the rain in high school. And they were winning the league championship. So they run on the field when I kick it again, there's no way I'm going to make it. Then about five seconds later, all our fans run on the field and they're all jumping on me. And I have a picture in the yearbook at St. Albans School where I went 10th, 11th, 12th with the cake that was supposed to be for the team that had been smashed in my face. And I had a big smile on my face. But that was another signpost, you know, that I could do more, that I might have some potential. Um, but it was always about enjoying the work, turning the work into not play, but certainly into enjoying the process of pushing yourself um, with balance to be your best. Now, what would you say when I listen to you, I think of my son who just finished his senior year of football, fell in love with it, was a true leader on the field. Um, but how important is it? You, we talk about leadership. That's part of the gold standard is who we have as mentors. But what about the people around you, the friends you hang out with, the people you spend most time with? How important is that? And who, who did you have around you? Well, first of all, tell me about your son for a second. What's his time? We got to get a shout out for your son. What high school? I'm 
Drew, he went to Ayala High School, or he goes to Ayala High School, and he um, was playing safety and wide receiver. And really, wow. the, the thing I'm most proud about is just the leadership that he displayed this yeah. year. His coach came up and just said to me, he's the field general on the field. I hope my kid grows up to be like him. Like, yeah. I love how he plays. And so yeah. not the fastest, not the strongest, but definitely so much heart. Yeah. Marv Levy, who was my first coach with the Chiefs, who gave me my break and and cut Jan Stenerud, who I had to compete against day in, day out, and who was being I was being chartered by Clark Hunt, who's now the owner for the last 15 years for the Chiefs. Marv Levy gave me that break, and he would say, you lead not from the front. You lead with your team. I mean, even from the back in a way, right? You are taking your team with you. You're not saying, I'm so great. Follow me, you know? No, it's about getting your team all on the same page, that you all care about each other. You all hold each other accountable. You all care about each other, which means empathy. A, a group empathy is a really powerful thing. I just spoke to uh, an Iowa football team that was taking on the defending state champion. You know, when you can get the guys to realize that it doesn't matter what the other team is doing, you guys, it's all about focus and passion for, uh, you know, 60 minutes, as they call it. It's really, by the way, more like seven minutes. This is in Jerry Kramer's book, Instant Replay, with the, my friend Dick Schaap, the late, great Dick Schaap, talking about it, where Jerry Kramer realized, you know, each play is six seconds. I'm in there for maybe 60, 70 plays. So 70 plays times six, that's 420 seconds. That's seven minutes. If I can be totally focused in those seven minutes, I'm going to be pretty damn good. You know, helping today's kids, especially with focus, makes a difference. But your son and leadership itself, I, I love the analogy of the field goal because I, I will get on the stage and just did a leadership program for the Scottsdale Police Department a month ago. And I had people line up and say, that's your offensive line. That's your family. You know, you don't really choose them so much. And hopefully they're protecting you, helping you feel safe. But then the person who's your holder you're in charge of selecting who is that person that you trust to put the ball down so positioning you, you to be successful. And that's the first major step of being an adult is choosing people that bring out your best, choosing people that you know will be happy in front of you, happy for your success behind your back. And likewise, you also feel the same about them. It goes both ways. And when you have two or three of those people in your life, hopefully more, but two or three of those, it makes an enormous difference. And, you know, you've heard this phrase, uh, the sum of the five people we spend the most time with really dictates so much about who we are. And by the way, the same premise is true in business, in our personal lives, our relationships with the person that you may choose to marry, you know, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and your best friends, but also in business, you know, that's everything. I would rather have, and I, I wonder if you don't agree with me, I'd rather have a B plus product and an A plus team to sell it than an A plus product with a B plus team. Because in the end, you there are lots of great products out there that never make it. You never see them on the shelves. They're hidden somewhere. Uh, you know, they didn't get the break they needed. And I work with a tequila company now. El Bandito Yankee is one of those things I find on the shelves, you know, learning that. But it's not that we have a great product, but it's it's so much more important to have a great team around you. And so I totally agree with you. And it's hard to do that when you're 14 and 12 and then 15 and 17 with all the pressure today with social media to uh, withstand the judgments of others that think you're hanging out with somebody that isn't cool. And you say, no, this person's cool. This person has my back. This person gets me and I get them. And I, I don't care that other people don't think they're cool. 
I love them for who they are. They love me for who I am. And that's always more important. So good. I think about softball and for us, it's all about bringing your teammates home, right? You get on base and it's about like, okay, I got to do my job now to bring them home. And when you were talking at first, it made me think about this summer when you talk about leading with your team and there was a pitcher and she was a little bit older and the team was kind of just brought together for one 10 day tournament. And so there's, you know, there's those social things that are, you haven't had time to bond and she was frustrated about something and she turned around and she started saying, you guys need to this, you guys need to this. And I afterwards pulled her aside and was like, listen, I wouldn't respond to that as a teammate. You need to say, we have this. Let's do this together. We, yeah. Yeah. Bring in, bring in that team unity and being together. Cause I said, if you do that, they do, they have to have your back and you want them to. But as soon as you do that, you isolate yourself and you almost separate and that, that team's going to crumble. Cause guess what? In crunch time and go time, it's going to fall, you know? And yeah. so that's, that's so very important when you're kicking. I'm interested because when I hit, right, you're in that batter's box and you have that moment and team yeah. sport, but it's one-on-one and that it's really you against the pitcher. It's a, it's a, you know, single and the focus, sport at that oh my moment. God, as a batter, the focus has to be unbelievably good. Yeah. You're just like zoned in. Right. So for us, the goal would be to just quiet our mind or say something we would almost like, you know, our coach would tell us, say, see the ball. Now there were a couple of times where I had to be telling myself all kinds of stuff just to stop the voices that trying to come in and I was trying to beat myself up. But generally when I was in the zone and at my best, my mind, I was able to stay clear as a kicker. What is that like? Are you, do you have certain thoughts? Do you just do your routine? What, what are you thinking? Your routine sounds routine. sounds boring. Your routine is your discipline. It's your craft. So part of your routine is that when you practice, when you practice, when you practice, you make it as much like a game as you can. You think about what am I going to be feeling? How confident am I going to be? What's the field going to be like? What are the field conditions? What's it going to smell like? Every sense. And then you project situations all over. Rehearse, 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 rehearse. So that practice is so much game becomes like a practice. And you can go back and see I'm just, just like I'm in practice. That to me is everything. And then I'll give you a great little insight uh, towards the end of my career, you find words that trigger your your response to be present and to be bold, not to be crazy, but to be bold and confident and strike. So that's so important. So as you imagine the right-footed kicker, your left foot for me plants right at the target and it has to be somewhere between you figure out what works for you, eight inches to a foot from the ball. Some guys like Eddie Murray were six inches from the ball. That's what worked for him. So for me, it was 10 inches from the ball. And that meant that when I came through and struck the ball, my left foot was about 10 inches from to the left of the football. And that's when my hips connected right at the right time. I had to point my foot like a ballerina, really, boom, with the striking surface so that it wasn't just here. It was here. It was more. And there's a bone up there right near the the ankle. So you get more of that connection of the energy that you're bringing into the ball. All right. So there's your first thing is your left foot. So I would say two things as I'm approaching the ball, left foot and explode. Now I didn't mean explode, try to kill it. Explode was my word, which worked only for me and might work for you, but you know, you find what works for you, which was go for it because the brain, when it is self-conscious And there's a great book called Overachievement by my friend, Dr. John Elliott. 
look it up and there's a great uh, chapter two is a lot on, on nerves and, you know, how you handle butterflies. But um, so check out that book, John Elliott, Overachievement. It's got a guy that's ripping his suit off and there's a Superman underneath. And he's a friend. Um, he works at Rice University and works. He's worked with San Antonio Spurs. He's just a brilliant guy. But for me, that left foot, as I'm about to plant and then explode, that meant unlike when you're self-conscious, the brain slows down and it activates your large muscle groups. Well, that may sound good, but actually you lose your touch, your kinesthetics, and you lose that snap. It's the whip where a 120-pound skinny tennis player can hit a 130-mile-an-hour serve, and you've got a guy that bench presses 650 pounds, uh, right tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs, probably can't hit it more than 90 miles an hour, right? Because you explosion of all those synapses in the brain. So that's what it did for me was same thing when you're throwing as a pitcher, you're letting it go. If you're trying to be too perfect, you know, the analogy is the coach says, you know, whatever you do, don't throw on the outside corner. Your brain is going, I'm, I got to consciously not throw the outside corner as opposed to letting it yes. go, which is the yes. difference between trying to be perfect and just trusting your training. So if your training's been good and you've made it like a game, then you can trust it. And so left foot and explode was awesome. Let me give you a little bit more science to it as well. When you attack the ball, when you trust your speed and your rotation in the, with your hips as you're swinging to hit that home run in softball or whatever sport it is, when you trust it, imagine as a kicker, I, I had the most 50 yarders in NFL history when I played. I still own, thank you, the longest field goal ever in the history of the NFL in the First quarter, 40 years later, 58-yarder, just inside 59 yards in RFK Stadium against the world champion defending Washington Redskins, which is great for me because that's where I grew up. So it was against my hometown team in front of my twin sister and my twin brothers and my mom and dad. You know, I still hold that record. But that power I had meant that my football would normally, if I attacked the ball and hit it well, wouldn't slow down until about 40 yards. So imagine you're kicking a 50-yard field goal and it's really windy. If you're trying to be too perfect, you don't hit it with that same impetus and it starts to slow down, let's say after 32 yards, that means it's got 18 yards of the wind beginning to push it more. And so it's going to vary in where it goes. But if you attack the ball, it's going to be more true to where you aimed. Does that make sense? So it fights the winds of adversity. So my accuracy and my game winning field goal percentage got better because I stopped trying to be too perfect and that's a big thing for a lot of people. I put my work in. It's got to be perfect. Well, put your work in. As, as Marv Levy would also say, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And perfect practice isn't just the conscious part of it. It's making it like a game. It's giving yourself healthy pressure so that you're not neurotic. It's not too much pressure, but it is understanding. I'm going to have to come through for my teammates. I'm going to have to get it done and be ready for the last second field goal or the 58 yarder in the first quarter, like I did against the Redskins way back in 1983. Wow. I love that. You have that record still. And it, to me listening, it came down to preparation and that's something we did as well. We practiced and our coach would try to say that we want to practice fast. So the game seems like it slows down. Whereas a lot of people practice slow, just routine. Here we go. Do this drill and you get in the game and it's super fast. And all of a sudden you're like, how do I react to it? Right. So you do want that added pressure. I was working with a team one time and I remember we we're throwing down and we we're doing some, you know, little relays. And then I said, okay, now 
they were like 12, but I said, now we're going to do a race and we're going to see which line can finish first. And I'm telling you, not one ball was thrown. Like literally the balls just started flying everywhere. <laughs> I said, okay, as soon as I made it a challenge, yeah. I said, how many of you said to yourself, don't make a bad throw. <laughs> so the majority of them, like you're talking about had said that, but I think we can do that off the field as well. We can do that in our personal lives. We can set ourselves up and almost, you know, sabotage ourselves sometimes with our right. thinking. Cause we, we have these insecurities and these fears and these worries yeah. and yeah. what are other people going to think or say? And yeah. I think as athletes, we've kind of learned like, no, you got to win that battle. And it's, it starts in your mind. You know what? Um, Travis Kelsey is one of my favorite guys. Right. And when I watched him on Saturday night live, I mean, he's a fish out of water. It's not football. He's Saturday night live. He's not a comedian, but he was so confident and so comfortable in his own shoes and that's what you want to do. You want to say, I've got what it takes. I just have to be more me than ever. You know, my original thing was, as I'm being rejected by all these teams, was I got to be somebody else. And really, a lot of that, putting yourself in the position to fail a lot, makes you, I think, begin to return to being more, being reminded, my favorite word, refresh the mind, reminded more and more of what is authentic to myself and just being myself. And Travis has that natural trust for himself. And that's why he's, you know, he's the first tight end to have seven years in a row of a thousand yards, right? He just broke the Chiefs all-time record, Tony Gonzalez record, Hall of Famer, but also his personality, right? He's helped integrate his off-the-field personality with his game personality. Not everybody does that. There's a lot of lessons to learn when you see people like that, that are doing so well and at the top of their game. And then, like you said, you're able to transition. Now let's talk about that for a minute. Um, for you, once you were done and you retired, how hard was that? Was your identity found in who you were as an athlete? Was it, it was a hard or an easy transition? I had, speaking of preparation, I was a legislative aide for Senator John Chafee of Rhode Island uh, at Dartmouth college. And then again, after I was cut by the New England Patriots after a few games uh, in 78, 300 years ago. And uh, then I got a permanent job after all those rejections. I thought maybe it's time to, you know, get a real job. And I got a permanent job with the Senate Commerce Committee, Senate Commerce and Science and Transportation for Senator Bob Packwood, which it's a great job on a committee because you don't lose your job if your senator loses their job. And um, I'm starting this job. It's paid. It's great. Everybody else was an attorney, pretty much. I probably would have been going to law school in a year or so. And the Kansas City Chiefs, out of nowhere, called me on Wild Card Saturday. And Jim Schaff called me and I said, thanks anyway, maybe another time. And then I hung up. And then I thought, you know, I never had a chance to hear what they would offer. And I called my mentor, the same Dick Johnson. And I said, what, what am I doing here? And he said, you're always going to wonder. So I had to find the guy. So here's another thing. Sometimes we're this close to our life going in an entirely different direction. And it would have been a great direction. But instead, I thought, I got to find this guy. I had to guess that his name was James Schaff, S-C-H-A-A-F, which don't ask me how I thought it was. It was correct. Called information. There was no internet. There was no Google. And there were two James Schaffs. First one he wasn't at. And then I called the uh, information again and said, is there a hospital? He just had back surgery. Is he near there? And, you know, and she said, I can't do, oh, try this number. He wasn't there. I said, well, wait a minute. He had back surgery. Where would he be? One hour after the stranger, Jim Schaff, called me 
from the Kansas City Chiefs. I found him in his hospital bed, Kansas City at Research Hospital, and it blew him away. He didn't believe it was me for a second. And we talked for an hour. A week later, they flew me in uh, into a snowy Kansas City, gave me a physical, and Marv Levy gave me a $2,500 bonus, number one, which I'd never had before, which is tiny for today's standards, but that was a sign. And then they also said, instead of bringing me in in training camp in late July, they were going to bring me in three months earlier, at the beginning of May. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to try one more time. Oh, by the way, you're going to be competing every day uh, where they're charting you, how quickly you're getting it off, not just how far it is and whether you're making it against John Stenner, who is my idol. You know, imagine if I'm a pitcher and I got to go against, uh, you know, Bob Gibson or S Sandy Koufax or, you know, one of the great pitchers today, like uh, Scherzinger or whatever. So, but I just thought it was worth it. So I worked in Washington, January, February, March, April, and then May 1st with the silver Volkswagen Scirocco that I bought with that little bonus. I drove out on I-70 all the way out to Arrowhead Stadium, and I trained for a month with these guys, got a little bit less in intimidated. Then I go to training camp in late July. It averaged 107 degrees at William Joel College. I had to outkick that guy every day at everything. That was my determination. I'm going to have to outkick this living legend who was the last player from the Super Bowl team in, uh, of 1970. And uh, I'll have to outkick him at everything every day. So Clark Hunt, who's now their owner, the son of Lamar Hunt, whose name is on the trophy for the AFC Championship, truly one of the great legends in sports in anything, and one of the nicest people ever. Clark Hunt's charting me. And uh, after four weeks, he tells his dad, you know, dad, I think I think Nick Lowry's going to beat out Jan Stenard. And Marv Levy had the guts because everybody thought he was crazy. And you can imagine the things they said about him. And Jan would go on to play six years more. It wasn't like it was the end of his career. He played with first with Green Bay for a couple of years, then four years with uh, Minnesota. He hated me. Jan didn't like me, of course, of course, at first. But he uh, redoubled his sense of how to train. And he had a great end to his career and cemented his Hall of Fame induction. So when you think, oh, no, I'm going to hurt their feelings if I outbeat this person, they've got this career. Well, God has plans for them, too. And it worked out pretty well for Jan. And, and I will say, here's an interesting thing. Later, uh, probably 10 years later, uh, no, actually 14 years later, Jan and I were on an NFL cruise on Norwegian cruise lines. Jan with his wife, uh, me with my then girlfriend and my mom and dad. And my dad and Jan, who's a very, uh, Jan is a very gentlemanly Norwegian man, uh, really hit it off. And that created an even deeper friendship for me with Jan. So it's really interesting how you just pursue your destiny and good things will take care of themselves. And I beat out Jan. Uh, I didn't watch any television or read the newspapers because I knew it was such a huge deal. Leah, this is really interesting. My first field goals for the Chiefs wasn't an extra point. It was wasn't a 25-yard field goal. Of course, it was a 50-yard field goal. Made that. Then I hit a 23-yarder, and I'm so afraid I was going to miss that, right, and undo the, the achievement of that first one. And now, eight minutes left, we're playing Seattle, Arrowhead Stadium, and we're at midfield, just inside midfield, and I, I tap Marv, who's kind of very gentlemanly, you know, kind of a Harvard professor guy. He did go to Harvard, actually, for a degree, advanced degree in history, English history, I think. Uh, I said, coach, I think I can make this. He goes, what? Okay. Field goal. So I run out 
and I crush a 57-yard field goal, hit halfway up the net, NFL record, never had been done, two 50-yarders in a game, team record, it broke Jan's 55-yard field goal. Those were my calling cards, if you will, to say maybe I did belong. And, uh, you know, when you break through your self-image, you break through all these rejections, you can do things you just never thought were possible. If I had made it and permanently, you know, for four, five, six, whatever years with the Patriots, I would have been okay, probably, but never as good as what ended up happening because of putting myself out there and being cut and knowing I always had to work to get better, always staying humble, confident, but humble and hungry to get better. And you taking those steps and doing the little extra at first saying no, but then, oh, wait, maybe I, maybe I should give it a shot and, and saying yes to an opportunity because you never know. And we meet different people all the time. And we never know, like you mentioned, that one person can literally change the course and path of your life. If you say yes to it. Played 18 years, you know, if I hadn't called him back, found him and called him back, I would never have played in the NFL and, 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 you know, anymore. I would play, you know, a couple of games for the Patriots, seven for seven on extra points. One really badly missed 45-yard field goal against the San Diego Chargers for them. Totally not ready to, to make it in the big time back in 78. And then two years later, think about this. Say to yourself, I'm not good enough now, maybe, maybe, maybe I am, but just in case I'm not. But if I dedicate myself for the next two years, who knows? Can I tell you one more story that's pretty cool? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and this is a part that we would talked about doing, which is what you get back when you help others too. So I started a program called Native Vision with Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. And with, I got my friend Clark Gaines, who was the number two at the NFL Players Association. And we started this sports and life skills program called Native Vision. I was doing work in philanthropy, philanthropy with athletes uh, with Jackie Joyner Kersey, arguably the greatest woman athlete ever. And she has a boys and girls club named after her in East St. Louis, which is a very poor area in the country, very much, you know, a challenged area. And she said, I'm going to, I'm going to give back to my community. And I said, Hey, could you come join us at native vision, which was now in its, let's say third year. She said, I can't make it. Bobby Kersey, her husband uh, has trained a lot of great athletes. She said, but there's this young person, Joanna Hayes, who is a former NCAA um, champion, hasn't run for two years, but she's really cool. And so she came out. So here's the here's a really cool thing. Speaking of two years, we're on the White Mountain Apache Reservation. We had a video narrated by the great Robert Redford. And there's shots of this woman, this light-skinned African-American woman with sunglasses and a, and a muscle shirt. She's coaching these Navajo and Apache kids in track. On the way back from that Native Vision, she's sitting next to me and she goes, you know, I was telling these girls... 14, 15, 16, to not give up on their dreams. And one of the Apache girls said, what was your dream? She said, that really caught me because my dream was always to win an Olympic gold medal. So the next day we're at my house because uh, a lot of players were, the athletes were NBA players and some, here's an Olympic, a future Olympic athlete. And others were at my house and she said, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to rededicate myself. So I didn't hear from her for about six months. And she called me and just said, I'm training. So now another year later, I'm watching the uh, Athens, Greece Olympics. And it's the final of the hundred hurdles. And there's the Canadian favorite. Next to her is the American. And next to her is the Russian. And they burst out of the blocks. And the Canadian actually hits a, the fourth hurdle. And so she slows down, loses the lead. 
then it's just the American, the Russian, the American, the Russian, the American, the Russian, the Russian hits slightly hits a hurdle about the eighth hurdle. The American just keeps gliding, just gliding across incredibly machine-like but graceful, bursts through to win, looks as she's bursting through and it flashes OR Olympic record. I think it was 12.38, collapses on the track, exults and takes off her sunglasses and guess who it was? Joanna Hayes. And I have a track wow. shoe that she gave me from that. So you never know. In two years, she went from never thinking she'd run again to Olympic champion. And it came from a 14-year-old white mountain Apache girl saying, good stuff out there. Lots of good stuff out there. We've got to keep digging it up and unearthing uh, inspiration and opportunities to help others get better. And in so doing, the gifts we get are pretty awesome. I agree. You want to help others and you want to be your best and you want to show how it's done, but then you also want to help people to be their best. And that is such a good story because it's true. Just even someone's belief in you can change your life. Planting a seed of, hey, there are these dreams out there or asking questions. That's what happened. Somebody asked her a question and she really took it to heart. And I think it's important to ask ourselves those questions. What do I want in my future? What does motivate me? I think sometimes we get so busy in life. We we put those things aside. What are those dreams that maybe I used to have, but because things didn't necessarily pan out right now and how they look, I haven't thought about it again. Well, why not? You yeah. know, reignite that. And so hearing your story, um, I think it's just about taking an action, taking, you know, a step and finding, you know, the right situation, the, the leadership, the mentorship, the people around you. And it's okay. It can look different, right? Everybody has different goals and different dreams, and it doesn't have to be to be an Olympian, Yeah. but whatever that is for you, think about that, right? Have that moment and say, why can't I be the one who goes and, and does something wonderful and, and makes a difference and, or maybe even inspire someone else to change their life forever. And, you know, it may be when we're 14, maybe when we're 30, it might be when we're in our sixties and seventies, you know, there are women I've seen and men who don't start running till they're 70 or 80 and they're running marathons, you know, uh, it's just, so that question is an eternal question. How do I serve my purpose? How do I serve God, if you will? And it also, I think, is accelerated when we align our deepest core values. We we keep asking that question so we know, yeah, I've got 10 values, but what are the top one or two? What are the top one or two? When I, we're clear on that, we make more defined, focused, consistent, follow-through decisions and greatness can come from that. And it can happen when we're 90 years old. Um, I had a professor my senior year at Dartmouth who was 94, Arthur Mayer, and he was the best storyteller ever. And his 88-year-old wife, Millie, was in the audience. And I walked with him a couple times, a half mile from his house on campus at Dartmouth College, across the big green, as we called it, to Dartmouth Hall. As I'm walking back with him after one of his lectures, his entire mentality at 94 was, how can I get it better? And that to me is my hero. He's my hero. I hope when I'm 94 or 104, I'm still going, how'd I do? How can I get better? That's how I feel. Yes. Just keep it going. We've never arrived. We have always more to learn. And I think I need to have you back on another time because we'll have to talk about you with what you do with the homeless and different philanthropies and different things that you do. Um, but just to wrap it up, how would you in one or two senses tell somebody to go out and live out the gold standard in their life? 
Well, um, one of my favorite lines I, I, I actually wrote in 1991, which is, it's not the brightness of the spotlight on you. It's the intensity of the light within you that is the ultimate measure of a human being. Some people need to just remember and turn that light back on. Maybe they've let it go dim, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciated thank it. You, Where yeah. can people find you if they wanted to check out you know, your, your website? Uh, my website, by the way, that high school team beat the state champions, by the way, that was just a couple of days ago. So I'm pretty cool. Um, yes. You can find me at nicklowry.com, N-I-C-K-L-O-W-E-R-Y, and also lowryspeaks.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, I I love the work I do. And, you know, I think the, the gift, the grace that we give when we're doing things that serve a higher purpose is we get better. We get better. We get less narcissistic as athletes today need to work on because, you know, it's not about us. It's about the gifts we have and how we can help others tap into their gifts. And that then comes back full circle as it did with Joanna Hayes. And for all of us, we get better. We get more intuitive, more compassionate, more empathetic and more effective in building a better world. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. And I hope that you all have been inspired um, by Nick and his story and not only what he accomplished on the field, because it is phenomenal, but ultimately he exemplifies the gold standard. It's how he does everything. And that's what it's about. You don't have to have a certain level of talent. You have to have the heart and the willpower to go make a difference. And so just wanted to encourage all of you to live out the gold standard in all you do. And we'll see you here next time. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Gold Standard Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. You can post on social media and tag at Leah20USA or use hashtag Gold Standard Podcast. Make sure you also subscribe so you get notified each week as a new episode releases. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We appreciate your reviews as they help encourage others to listen in. Until next time, live out the gold standard and keep turning your goals into reality.